All right, we are, uh, we're going to start a new teaching series this morning. I had mentioned a while back that we were taking a pause from our study uh, through the book of Acts, and uh, this is what I wanted to pause that study for. Um, the Lord knows we may get back to the Acts study, but uh, for the immediate and foreseeable future, um, I've decided that I want to spend some time in what I consider to be one of the truly great chapters in the Bible. You know how it is with God's Word. It's all God's Word. It's all wonderful. It's all amazing. It's all deep. It's all important. It's all significant. But there are some portions that stand out even above the other portions. And I would certainly put <clears throat> this chapter that we're going to focus on today, the Gospel of John chapter 17, I would put that in that category of uh, certainly one of the great chapters of the Bible. This is nothing directly to do with our study, but years ago, I had an opportunity that came my way uh, to purchase a, a special page from a special Bible. Uh, there were, back in the olden days of England, when King James had first published the the King James Version of the Bible. And um, as it was first published, there weren't enough copies that were actually printed to put a copy in the hands of all of the, the individual believers of all the churches in England. But what the king did was he provided a pulpit edition for each one of the uh, churches in England so that each church had one copy of the King James Version. And the pastor, of course, was generally placed in charge of that and used it for personal study, personal reading, <coughs> excuse me, and for the preaching of God's word. Anyway, um, most of those Bibles are lost to history. And uh, this one had been preserved and some enterprising person uh, got a hold of a copy, uh, a fairly pristine copy of the pulpit edition of one of those churches' Bibles and um, this is going all the way back to the 1600s, of course. Anyway, they got a hold of a copy, and, and uh, I say enterprising because what they decided to do was rather than sell it as an entire um, Bible, they um, chopped it up into individual pieces. They took the binding out and framed uh, each one of the pages of the Bible and put those pages up for sale. So I had... I had this opportunity to come across my desk years, this is years ago, to purchase one of those pages. And as an early person in the purchase order, I was given the opportunity to choose what page I wanted to purchase, which, which particular portion of God's Word. I, I chose John 17, so I still own that page, and it's a, it's a blessing to have it. It's hard to read. I don't know if you've ever actually seen an original King James text but all the all the um, the S's or F's, for instance, it's it's just as you read it, it's very difficult to read. But it's just it's just an awesome uh, personal thing to have. And the reason I chose this particular page to purchase is because of the significance of this particular chapter. It's a prayer, and the setting, of course, is the Last Supper. It's the Lord spending that last night with his disciples in the upper room. Him knowing full well, they weren't really sure exactly what was going on yet, but him knowing full well that after that meal, he was going to lead his disciples out to the garden 
of Gethsemane where he would be arrested and uh, put on trial under false charges, convicted, and ultimately the next day be crucified. And so this prayer that's recorded here in John 17 is the final moments of their time together in the upper room. Following this prayer, he leads, um, in chapter 18 of the Gospel of John, he leads his disciples out of the upper room and he leads them to uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, which was across the Kidron Valley on the, uh, the, lower, the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives. So in terms of the, the prayer, we know that Jesus was a man of prayer. Uh, there are portions in the Gospels, for instance, that mention that there were certain nights where he would leave his disciples and he would literally go and pray all night long. Um, but most of the prayers that the Lord himself ever prayed are not recorded for us in Scripture. We have, we have a few very short prayers recorded for us. And then we have John 17, which is by far the longest recorded prayer. And uh, it's, it is interesting in that he didn't leave the disciples in the upper room, go away in private and pray where only he and the Father could hear what he was praying. But he intentionally prayed this in front of them. Uh, it wasn't putting on a show in the sense of, I'm just going to pray this in front of you to, to put on a show of prayer. It, it was, though, him wanting his disciples to be fully aware and exposed to what was uppermost in his heart and his mind, with him knowing that this was the culmination point of his life in this world and the culmination point of being right on the, the precipice of the fulfillment of his great mission from the Father, the accomplishment of the plan of salvation through his sacrifice on the cross. Now, there's certain things about this prayer that we can, we can be confident in as we, as we take a look at it. One is we can be certain that what is represented in this prayer is the will of God. You know, the Lord instructs us and he exhorts us and encourages us that when we pray, one of the things is we're, none of us are perfect prayers. I'm, I'm going to put Jesus in a, in a distinct category from us. Everything he prayed was prayed perfectly. And we, at our best, pray imperfectly. But because of that, we're not 100% in praying the will of God. There are many things that I've prayed in the course of my, my years of, of prayer, my years of knowing the Lord and walking with the Lord, and every single one of those years is filled with hundreds, if not thousands, of personal prayers. And I'm certain, I'm sure that I prayed many times outside the will of God. You know, praying things that I desired or I wanted or I felt should happen, that the Lord ended up doing something entirely different than what I was praying. And if, thankfully, there have been times when I've prayed and, and by the grace of God found the sweet spot of the will of God. But what we can be certain of as we study this prayer is Jesus was in the sweet spot. He was praying exactly according to God's will. And as a result of that, we can be super confident, 100% confident, that the Father God heard everything that Jesus prayed that night. And not just heard it, but answered it exactly as the Lord asked him to do so. Um, I think it's particularly important for us to understand, to study and read and, and meditate in and, and soak in this prayer because 
it provides unique insight. It does for me. It's meant to do this for you as well. It provides unique insight into the heart and mind of the Lord Jesus. Uh, some things can be communicated through teaching. And some things, like in this case, he's not exactly teaching his disciples, and yet he is. But he's teaching them by example. It's not so much that he's, he's taking them into a prayer class. It's not like he stopped the, the Last Supper and he said, Okay, guys, now I'm going to instruct you in prayer. He does do that for his disciples in other places. Like we're all familiar with the... Uh, the, the famous prayer in Matthew chapter 6, we studied it years ago when we were going through the Gospel of Matthew, what is traditionally called the Lord's Prayer. You know, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. That prayer we call the Lord's Prayer, but I think I mentioned this when we were studying the Lord's Prayer back in Matthew 6, and I certainly want us to be clear about it now. If anything, this is the prayer that should be called the Lord's Prayer. Why? Because... That prayer was instruction for his disciples. This prayer is what Jesus actually prayed. And it reveals the priorities of his heart, and it reveals the depths of his perspective. And those are things that are meant to be imprinted on the disciples' minds and hearts that night, and in the years that followed as they thought back and considered what they experienced listening to him pray that night. But it's still meant to have that kind of impact and imprint on our minds and hearts today. And not just in terms of how we pray, but in terms of it teaches us, it says so much about our whole life in this world. Who we are, what, what we're here for, what, what this whole thing about continuing in this world as believers now is really all about so what I want to do is I want to lead us through John chapter 17. I want to do an in-depth study together in John chapter 17. Um, I, I'll take you through a, a brief outline. Today, all I want to do is an overview, an introduction in a sense. And then uh, in the weeks that follow, I want to dig into the and kind of mine the depths of what's in this prayer. Uh, a basic outline of the prayer, I would break it into four sections. Uh, the four sections are the first five verses, which I'm not going to spend a lot of time on today. But those verses, those first five verses, are going to be the primary focus of our first set of studies in the prayer. In those first five verses, the Lord prays. He prays for more than this, but the, 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 the number one priority concern in his heart is glorification that he recognizes that he is heading into a series of events that are far from glorified. They're humiliating events that are ahead of him. But he has his eyes fixed on where those events ultimately are meant to lead him. And his story is not going to end in humiliation. It will take him through humiliation. But his story is going to end in glorification. And a glorification that's even greater than it would have been had he never gone through the steps of humiliation that were required in order to fulfill the mission and purpose of the Lord and to accomplish our salvation. So we'll spend some time uh, in the weeks to come camping in those first five verses, which are maybe, I mean, you could make a case for uh, 
Ephesians chapter 1, but between Ephesians 1 and John 17, 1 through 5, it's to me, it's like a, it's almost like a tie in terms of which section of scripture is the deepest section that there is in all of God's word. So we'll, we'll spend some time there. We'll camp there. Then uh, for today, we're going to spend a little bit more time looking at the, the big section in the middle of the prayer, which is verses 6 through 23, which is where his focus shifts primarily from himself and his, his own circumstances and his own mission and his own concerns for all of that to us, to his people. And uh, I'm going to go through that section Uh, at least as an overview today. Then in verse 24, toward the end of the prayer, he, in a single verse, is praying for a future reunion in heaven between himself and his saved ones, the ones that belong to him through his saving work. And then finally, in the last two verses of the prayer, uh, he makes what I would call a prayer of commitment, which is simply him, him doubling down on knowing and declaring before his heavenly father that he's here for a purpose, he's here to accomplish a mission, and that he was committed to the uttermost to the fulfillment of that mission. All right, so we're going to spend, as I said, some time in verses 6 through 23. But before we do that, I just want to read through the entire prayer, and then uh, we'll take some time overviewing those middle verses for our consideration today. So John chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them 
from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made, no, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. All right, the one thing I just want to say as we just read through that is Jesus full well knew he was about to be arrested, put on trial, falsely accused, falsely convicted, and crucified. Imagine yourself in his situation and you've got a few minutes to pray before all of that unfolds. How would you have prayed and what would you have prayed? I can just tell you, you wouldn't have prayed this. I wouldn't have prayed this. I would have been praying more like we do eventually hear him pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, there's got to be some way out of this. There's got to be some other way we can accomplish this. But I just want, you know, in that moment with his disciples, as they're listening, as they're hearing his heart revealed in a private conversation between himself and his heavenly father, just the, the, the depth and the breadth of what he was concerned about and what mattered most to him. All right, so for this middle section, and the reason I wanted to spend time with this middle section is it, it more directly relates to us And while we're not going to start there, we're going to, of course, next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll start with the first five verses and spend some time there. Uh, It'll be a while before we get to 6 to 23. So I just kind of wanted to whet your appetite for the things that are ahead of us. And um, I wanted to just identify from this middle section some main themes that we are eventually going to get to and develop. And I wanted to give you like a key word connected each one of these main themes. The first one is in verse 6. Jesus prayed, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. I have manifested your name. So the key word here is, of course, manifested. It's a word which means to make known. Something that previously was not understood has now been made plain, made obvious, made, made clear 
to those who previously did not see it clearly. And what's being manifested here, and it's the Lord Jesus that's doing the manifesting. What's being manifested is what? I have, the Lord prays, I have manifested your name. I've made known what was previously not clearly understood, your name, Father. Now, he could be referring just to the word Father, the title Father, the idea that, that he's made it fully known to his disciples that God is, is wonderfully now revealing himself in new covenant revelation as the Heavenly Father. That is, as we discussed before, as we went through the Lord's Prayer in the Gospel of Matthew, that is a new revelation to the people of God. Uh, God had not revealed himself primarily as a Heavenly Father to his people. And that's because in the Old Covenant, the people of God had a relationship with God, a saving relationship with God, but it was more a relationship of servant to master. Whereas that relationship deepens and widens and, and it takes on new significance in the experience of the new birth and the experience of being literally adopted into God's own family and giving, given new relationship status with God the Father in which now God reveals himself as Father to his people. But I think what Jesus says here in verse 6 is, is wider than just he's revealed or manifested that, that God is now Father to his people. We did a study, and this is years ago, so I wouldn't expect you to have this uppermost in your mind or, or even remember this. But as a church, we did a study through the names of the Lord in Scripture. This was, this was way back when we were um, primarily meeting in home churches and staying connected through a, um, a webcast that all of the, the home churches shared. And we did a study where I tried to identify all of the revealed names of God in Scripture, and we, we looked at each one of those in its own context. But the overview of the study was this. The overview, and this is something that I do hope you, you do grasp and you take away with you, and that is that the names of God represent, they're not just like names in our culture today. You know, when, a, when generally speaking, some, there are some Christian exceptions to this, but generally speaking, when people name their children, why do they name them what they name them nowadays? Yeah, it just sounds, it sounds pleasing to the ear. And there's occasion where someone will say, well, I named them such and such because the name means this, and that quality or that characteristic is important to me, so I wanted to communicate that in the life of my child and, and, and have them identified with that characteristic. That's really the, the few, the exceptions that do that, are really tracking more closely to the biblical concept of names. Names have meaning in scripture. Our culture has for the most part lost that concept. And what are, if uh, of the names of all beings, of the names of all individuals, what is the most important names that there are? They're the names of God himself. And each one of those names of God, and there are multiple names of God through scripture, each one of those names represents a specific or points to a specific characteristic or attribute of who God is, what he's like. And so when the Lord says, I have manifested your name to the people, I think it's more than just the Lord brought new information and said, hey, in the, in the old covenant, 
God was not really like a father to you, but now he is. He did that. But more than that, remember from earlier in the Gospel of John, there was this exchange with his disciples where he said to one of them, if you have seen me, you have seen the father. And what he meant by that is, I believe, what he was praying about here in verse 6. The manifestation of the person of God the Father as represented perfectly in the person of God the Son. Like Father, like Son. In that we only had a clouded perception of exactly who God was even all the way through all of the Old Covenant revelations of God. And the revelation of God was great in the Old Covenant. But until Jesus walked onto the stage of history, we did not see God perfectly and fully represented in the way that we do in the person of the Son of God. And so we'll be focused on what it means that the Lord manifested the name of the Father to his people. Also in verse 6, the second focal point that I think is greatly significant is this. When he says in the second half of the verse, yours, he's talking about the people. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. The second key word that I want to focus our attention on is the word given. We are a given people. And maybe this is um, maybe the, the, the least focused on aspect of the significance of the saved people in the new covenant. Seeing ourselves as given, a given people. <clears throat> we do talk, and rightly so, and we'll be focused on that <clears throat> in our study ahead of us, <clears throat> excuse me, in the first five verses. We are identified as a chosen people of the Lord. He chose us for salvation, selected us out of all of humanity. He looked at you and targeted you for salvation. But here, the emphasis is that you, in some sense that was mysterious to you, not to him, but mysterious to you, prior to your salvation, you actually belong to the Lord. He said... Here in verse 6 again, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. And then this phrase, yours they were. Yours they were. What does that mean? Yours they were. That means they belonged to God the Father before what Jesus is actually praying about here. Yours they were. They belonged to you and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. The you gave them to me part is the moment they were actually saved. But before they were actually saved, in some mysterious sense, they already belonged to God the Father. That's the mystery of what we call election or a predestination to salvation, a being chosen for that special purpose. But the idea being that we, even before we knew him, In his heart and mind, we belong to him. And at the key moment, he gave us to his son. So it's a gift. Salvation is a gift. But the focus of the gift here is not the gift that comes to you. The focus here is on the gift between father and son. 
The Father God owned you, possessed you, saw you as his, and then chose to give you to his son. And in the giving, you were actually saved. We'll focus attention on that as well. Verse 8 is our next focal point. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, that's the words, and have come to know in truth that I, have, that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So in verse 8, I'm going to use the word entrusted. The Lord Jesus, in his ministry, selected out special individuals. We call those special individuals at the beginning of the story disciples, and then eventually they become rebranded or re-identified with a new title, and we call them then apostles. Those men were selected for a special purpose and entrusted by the Lord himself with the words. The words. What words? We would call those the gospel. They are special saving words. Think about this. In all of human history, how many words have ever been spoken? How many words have been written? How many words have been used to communicate thoughts and ideas and concepts between one human being and another, and sometimes just between human beings and, and their desire to express themselves just in their own privacy. But how many words have been chosen, been used, and every word bears some significance, even the most corrupt ones? How do I know that? Because we're told on the Day of Judgment, we will give an account for every word that has ever proceeded out of our mouth. That tells me if the Lord is going to stop the day of judgment proceedings and focus on all of the words that have ever come out of my mouth, that all of those words bear some significance. But there are certain words that rise in significance above all other words that have ever been used to communicate any ideas in all of history. And those words are the saving words the gospel words. And he entrusted those words to the apostles who have then, in the pages of Scripture, passed them on to us. We'll focus, do attention on that when we get there. Verse 9, the next focal point. Um, it says this, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. This is somewhat of a mysterious verse. Ultimately, it shouldn't be confusing to us as God's people. Uh, the more we study God's word, the more our hearts become accustomed to the way God thinks, the way God looks at the world that he's made and the, the, the population of humanity that he has formed but God doesn't look at things the way many, even with good intentions in the Christian community, characterize him as looking at things. Is this a common focus that you hear in Christian communication about prayer? The Lord isn't praying for the world. He wasn't, when he was in the world, praying for the world. How much of our prayer time is spent praying for the world? 
how much did he spend praying for the world? He wasn't praying for the world. There was a lot of stuff going on in the world of his day. A lot of important stuff, big stuff, Roman Empire level stuff. He wasn't praying about that. He wasn't praying for that. It wasn't a priority concern of his heart. It's not that the world didn't matter at all. It's that the world didn't matter as much as what he was praying for. As a human being, one of my, and as a believer, one of my great frustrations in life is that I just never feel like I pray enough. Have you ever had that experience as a believer? Just feeling like you just don't pray enough? Anybody? Am I? You're all kind of like staring at me like, I've never had that experience in my life. I just never, I don't care how much I do pray, I don't feel like I pray enough. Why? Because I'm aware of how needy everything is around me and everyone around me. And I've got my own needs that are always weighing on my concern, you know, meter. I just never feel like I do pray enough. But one thing I am also aware of is I I can't pray about everything. I can't pray 24 hours a day. I just can't. I don't have the capacity to do that. So I pray for what? What matters most to me. That's what I pray for. And here we see the Lord praying for what matters most to him. And I'll just tell you this right now. What mattered most for him is not the world. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Has it ever encouraged you or warmed your heart to hear from some believer, hey, I was thinking about you and I was praying for you? Have you ever been encouraged just to hear that? Okay, and that is encouraging. And anyone that ever tells me, hey, I was praying for you, or I am praying for you, or they're promising I will pray for you, I'm always blessed, I'm always encouraged, and I would just say, bring it on and bring more. But my greatest encouragement is not to hear that you're praying for me. My greatest encouragement is in John 17, verse 9. I and praying for them. He's talking about those that belong to him, those that the Father has given to him. Let me, let me use this key word. We are, a, in terms of prayer, the prayer that the Lord himself prays, we are a targeted people. That means he's not just flinging prayer arrows willy-nilly all over the, the known creation. He's looking at you and he's fully aware of your real needs, and he prays for you. Let me, I, I'm not going to jump around a lot today, but for this I did want to just read as an encouragement these two other parallel passages. Romans chapter 8. You don't have to turn with me. You can listen if you'd just like to listen. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding. And then these two awesome words, who is interceding at the right hand of God 
for us. Then in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, speaking of the Lord, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession and then these two awesome words for them. Who are the them? Those who draw near to God through Christ. He not just interceded when he was on earth but always lives to make intercession for them. So we'll focus some attention when we get there on the amazing concept that the Lord Jesus sits on the throne in charge of everything and yet still prays. And when he prays, he is not praying for the world. He's praying for you. Targeted. Chapter 17 now, verses 11 through 15. Let me reread that little section. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Multiple times in this short section, he repeats this key word, kept. The people of God are a kept people. It's a prayer that he prayed and continues to pray (coughs) that the people that belong to him, that the Lord that the Father gave to him that he has now saved would be guarded from the dangers that surround us in the world. Those dangers, as David was exhorting us in our worship time this morning, those dangers are multitudinous. They're, they're, They're multiplied. There's all kinds and categories of dangers that we face. Um, And when we get to this section, I'll try to catalog some of those for us so that we can be clear about what we're being guarded from. But the the assurance is, whatever the danger that we face, we should have the confidence that he is committed to being the guardian that we need to keep us from being overwhelmed by that danger. Next section, verses 16 through 19. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I I see two key words here. I, I just can't boil it down to a single word. The two key words are sanctified and sent. We are, because the Lord prays, for us, and it was uppermost in his concerns for us. We're not just guarded from danger. We are meant to be sanctified from the world that surrounds us. 
where this is the this is the conundrum spiritual challenge that every believer in every generation is faced and we face it and it's not less of a challenge today than it was in the first century if anything it's a greater challenge today than it's ever been for any generation of believers that has preceded us that is we are called to be in the world he does he specifically says, i'm not praying to take them out of the world we have a purpose a reason to be in the world in fact he even sends us into the world but we're not to be of the world and what does that mean and how is that meant to look and so we have these two principles these twin principles that work are <coughs> meant to work in conjunction with each other we're a sanctified people and a sent people so what happens if you're sent but not sanctified and what happens if you're sanctified but you never go you never actually accomplish what you were sent to accomplish so there are problems on either side of that arrangement we'll look uh, more closely at all of that together when we get there Uh, verse 20 I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word this is you and me he was literally praying primarily for the apostles that night the the 11 faithful disciples that remained with him Judas has already gone out of the room to betray him and he's now praying for the 11 remaining but here we're folded into his concerns and not just folded in as an afterthought but folded in in the sense that everything he prayed for them is now applying to us and remains his priority concern for us so the key word here is included we are included in the concerns of John chapter 17 the concerns that were on the heart of the Lord Jesus then the last section verses 21 through 23 let me read those verses again he prays that they may all be one just as you father are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the so that this is what we call a purpose clause a purpose phrase meaning what he's just described explains what will happen if that prayer is answered and the church is one in the way that it should be one one like singular he says so that the world may believe that you have sent me what does that imply what's implied is if the church doesn't find its singularity then the world will ultimately not believe the message that Jesus was sent by the Father the glory that you have given me I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one I and them you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know so he repeats that concern a connection between the condition of the church and the comprehension of a world in darkness those two concepts are linked by the Lord more than once here that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me the the New American Standard in verse 23 uses this phrase instead of perfectly in one and this is just to me it helps clarify 
there, the phrase in the New American Standard is, may be perfected in unity. So the, the key word here in this section is unified. The Lord prays for a unified church. Now what's the problem, practically speaking? You've heard me use statistics like this before. It's been a while. But the last time I looked, and I'm sure there's many more now than there were then. The last time I looked, there were over just in the United States, just in the United States, and there are many other countries besides the United States, obviously, where the church exists. But just in the United States, there's over 25,000 Christian denominations. These are groups that identify themselves as believers, true followers of Christ, but want to distinguish themselves and separate themselves from other groups of believers. We, we are faithful to the Lord, but we're not like those people over there. Now, how in the world can the church be perfectly united as one in the same way that the Son is one with the Father and the Father is one with the Son? This is a big issue and it's a big, it's a big challenge for Christianity. Always has been, remains, and, and probably always will be until the second coming of Christ. But my concern in this section is the Lord linking it to the comprehension of the world. So, you know what? I, I can't really control how united you and I are with the 25,000 denominations that are out there. It's hard to control that. I mean, there are some opportunities that come my way to have unified fellowship with, with other pastors and other churches, and I try to take advantage of those opportunities as the Lord brings them our way. But... You and I are responsible for whether we, as a people within this community of faith, whether we are united together in what he describes as perfected in unity. And if we are, you know, the church is always wondering, I've wondered this myself, how can we be more effective in reaching an unbelieving world around us? The Lord links our unity to the world's comprehension the world's ability to see and to understand the truth of the gospel by how they perceive us. Not just in our relationship with the Lord, but in our relationship with each other. So we will spend some time looking more closely at that as well. All right, I hope this was a uh, helpful intro to John 17. I'm looking forward to the study. I hope you are as well. You can be praying for me as I develop each one of these messages. And of course, we'll start with the section I kind of skipped over today, the, what I'm calling perhaps, perhaps the deepest section in all of God's word, the first five verses of John 17. So God bless you. Thank you for coming today. Look forward to seeing you, Lord willing, next Sunday.